Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found a probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me alongside Chris Shamity's. Uh, God, I, you know, I'm going to keep saying these credits, Chris, because like we said, it's uh, we got a year to do it. Uh, defending national champion with his uh, with his collegiate team and also coach of the year. So um, he's the brains on the beauty. Really? I don't know. Is, is that sure how we that. did this? Is that, I, is that how we're doing I, it? I, I never got that memo. <laughs> Nobody voted. I voted. I was the only one who voted. So uh, good show um, this week. We have Mike Winograd uh, coming on. And I met Mike with you. Uh, he's a very successful lawyer. He ran for U.S. soccer president. He, you played with him. Uh, with Jeff Gettler at Lafayette. So uh, he knows the soccer world. We're going to talk to him about uh, about his son and the journey that he's sort of gone through and the whole recruiting nightmare uh, aspect. So, and it's it's a good ending because he's at Colgate. He's going to Colgate, a nice D1 program there. Supposedly more entrepreneurs at Colgate than any other college in the country, I am told. So my wow. daughter got it. My daughter and they have it. their own ski slope there. Did you know that? They have their own. That looks like they're in the mountains and it's freezing all the time. Yeah. Uh, he should talk to his son in about February. Say, Dad, I should have gone to UCLA. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> but but uh, I had a, an interesting week. I was in Key West this weekend uh, in June. Not the, not the subtropics where you want to head. My God. Yes. Um, you know, one thing comics, some comics take pride in is walking people, having people leave their show. And, you know, they say, hey, man, they can't take it. You know, the comedy is like, I never have liked that. In 35 years of doing stand up, I walked some French guys once because when um, during the Gulf War and the, the, you know, the whole Iraq thing and then the French, I was I would make fun of the French. I'd be like, oh, we're going to invade them on a Tuesday and they'll be smoking cigarettes, making fun of Americans. They'd be like, oh, the Americans, they think they're so tough. Look at me. I'm a big superpower. They are not so tough. Oh, my God. They're here. Run. Everyone. Holy shit. <laughs> I said we should invade the France, French, right? So that was probably 20 years ago uh, that I walked some French people. And when I went back to the club owner at Dangerfields, he goes, hey, why'd you walk people? And I go, I, I guess they were French. He goes, well, what'd you say? I, he goes, not that bit you do about the French. I go, yeah. He goes, they walked because of that? He goes, screw them. I'm going to give you a hundred dollar bonus. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's the mechanics of walking someone? Like, like you, well, you, you say, get these guys out of here or are you in no, like, the point that they leave? Like I saw Bobby Slayton at Gotham and Bobby Slayton was notorious for walking people. And he got on the Asian thing with a young Asian couple sitting in the front row and like just, you know, went at them about being Asian the whole time. And after a while, like people who weren't Asian, Puerto Ricans were going, hey, dude, get up the Asians, man. <laughs> and, they, and they all they all got and a couple of people got up and he was like he was loving it. And I'm like, oh, my God, I would be I would I couldn't take it if people were walking out of my show. So. I said to, all I said was, it was this uh, young, uh, these women, two women, um, uh, gay couple, and uh, not that that has anything to do with anything, I guess, I don't know, um, but I said, um, I said something, she goes, well, I'm from Poland, don't make any Polish jokes, and I said, well, I only know one Polish joke, and she goes, well, don't say it, and everybody went, say it, you know, so at that Perfect. point, I had to Perfect. tell them, yeah. I had to tell them, so 
the old joke is this guy walks into a store and he says, uh, I'll have one pound of Polish ham, please. And the person goes, you're Polish, aren't you? And he goes, why? Because ordered Polish ham? That's ridiculous. If you ordered a pound of Genoa salami, would you say, oh, you must be Italian because you ordered Genoa salami. Oh, corned beef, you must be Irish because you ordered a pound of corned beef. So why would you say I'm Polish because I ordered a pound of Polish ham? And the guy goes, well, because this is a hardware store. So that was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the joke they got up and left it that walked them that was the joke that got them to get up and leave. i'm like and of course as they're leaving the crowd is heckling them they're doing their my job for them they're like oh hey, you're thin skin that was nothing relax i'm polish <laughs> so and then i'm leaving you know i'm leaving after the show everybody's just talking and there's this one guy there with his wife and his daughter and he's like, well, you should not make the fun of the Polish. It's, uh, it's been very tough, that country. And I go, oh, uh, wow, well, I didn't get that deep. I said, where are you from? He goes, Russia. I go, yeah, yeah, you got a lot to talk about right now. That's <laughs> it. It's Second what, show. What, what you did to Poland. My God, I told the Polish you about ham. <laughs> you guys invaded it. So this, so uh, wow. So so and and the the Don Rickles walk people because that's all he did, right? Was an insult comic kind of thing. A different era, and yeah. also he had sort of a grandfather, literally clause in there. People, and he'd get yeah. on everybody, and he'd do it the right way. Um, you know, the one person who really turned people off in my day of doing stand up was Dice Clay. Like it was so yeah. misogynistic that yeah. people were like, "Dude, what?" Like, wow. They used to say the place is filled with. Um, you know, women haters and their girlfriends that said he used to go to Dice Clay shows. So that was the only time I've ever felt like uh, club owners are like, don't say the F word. Don't. Do I'm like, what are you talking about? We're adults here. It's it's 1230 at night in Albany, New York. We're not going to we can't swear on a Saturday night. We're like, you know, he kind of did that to us. I also feel similarly now, um, you know, the the seller in New York, the young NYU students show up and with their arms crossed, just waiting to hit the answer button to say you're racist, sexist, homophobic, you know, all that mm. stuff. And look, comics are very liberal. So um, when they've had enough, perhaps you've pushed it past the boundaries. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was great not to even get political, but Ricky Gervais and Chappelle both did their stand up and they gave their views and were making fun of certain things. And um, I guess Netflix just came back out and said, if, you know, these are artists, they're doing their thing. If you don't feel comfortable with who we book, maybe Netflix isn't the right place for you to work at. And I thought, wow, that's a change. That's a difference. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Netflix is like unbelievably championed uh, comics and stand-up comics, right? right? right. Like and the comics guy. are to defend. Uh, the comics are, are to offend, you know? Um, well, that's the nature of it. I mean, it's right. it's about the boundaries, right? And trying to push all that stuff. And yeah, we're also, yeah. Comedy is. The canaries in the coal mine. So, um, so hey, look, so uh, I'm excited to talk about Mike. I met him uh, with you in Philadelphia at the coaches convention uh, years back. He's sort of well-rounded in our soccer area. And I tell you, when you had introduced me to him and when he was running for um, for president of U.S. soccer, I thought it was the, the fix that was sort of needed. Uh, he's a lawyer. He's a businessman. He's a player. You know, he had kids in programs. Um, but man, what he must have learned. And it'd be great to talk to him to say like what he sort of learned during that process. Because I think that's when Kyle Martino was running, right? Uh, mm -hmm, exactly, Cord yeah. Cordero was running at the same time. And I thought like, if you looked at the ballots and not name recognition, he he had a shot. So, um, but, but tell me a little bit about how you know him and-, and um, 
Yeah, I mean, the thing about Mike is that he's he's got a, a great array of time in the game where he played Division One soccer, but a lot of people don't know he went to Israel and played professionally in Israel for a bunch of years mm-hmm. uh, and was really successful in the first division there, which is an underrated league. You know, you don't hear too much about Israeli soccer because they, they don't make the World Cup all the time, and part of that's because they have to qualify out of Europe, which is so hard. That's and weird. Small, yeah, and they're a small country, right? So... Um, but it's it's a it's an um, underrated league and, and he did really quite well there. Um, but his father was a lawyer and he came back and, and and went to law and went to law school at UPenn. He's a bright guy. He's worked for some of the best firms in New York and is a soccer uh, guy, you know. And and, yeah. and his son has come up through the game and it'll be interesting to talk to him now to to get his perspective on the recruiting process. You know, yeah, he's been a college and pro player himself. Well, that's a couple of shows, I think, like we mentioned yeah. when we were off air, you know, because I you know, want to talk to him about U.S. soccer. Boy, playing pro ball in Israel and then um, and, and now his son at Colgate. Um, and then we're going to hear from his son in February up at Colgate. But uh, they're, <laughs> they're a great program. Uh, they actually beat UMass when I think, uh, you know, in the NCAA. So and a good program. Good mm. program too. So, uh, to talk quickly uh, about what you saw against Uruguay, I kind of had a good feeling. Uh, I thought the guys played well. Uh, that was an older Uruguay team. Um, you have Cavani and Nunez up top. Uh, the guys seem to handle it. Zimmerman, I can't believe Zimmerman's not in the Premier League, or people aren't sniffing around because he seems like a a good center. Yeah, back. yeah. I think that's the common you know word now is that he's good enough to be in the Premier League. Um, you know, you see six foot three, he's at a good age, he's 29, arguably he could have, or should have gone earlier, but he's really kind of ramped up these last few years and his stock has gone up super high. So it's interesting to see, and he had the opportunity, I'm sure to go to different places. Um, and, and, and I had crossed over with some time with him when he was at LAFC, uh, and saw how much his game developed when he was there. And a lot of the passing that you see that he makes now is stuff yeah. that really was, was really kind of implanted in him at, at LAFC. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just now a choice and he's gotten well-paid now, uh, at Nashville. So they've made him a, a financial priority on that roster. So, uh, I assume he and his family are happy, but this is a chance to finally get to a world cup. I thought the Morocco game, they really control things in a good way in, in a way that impressed me, mm-hmm. um, because Morocco is sneaky good. You know, they have a lot of guys who play yeah. a lot of good teams in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, to be able to control the match the way they did, I thought was impressive. There were some chances against Morocco that I wish we didn't give up, but okay, fair enough. Yeah. But Uruguay, I think the score line is fortunate. Yeah. I mean, I think they have a several chances to score goals, uh, during the game. And I think if you replay that game, we may not get a draw, uh, but they're a really good team. So it's, it's, it's good to see that we, we go toe to toe with these teams now. Yeah, they stayed in the pocket. They didn't panic. Uh, you're talking about Zimmerman broke the lines a couple of times, you know, with some nice penetrating you know, passes. Uh, I guess we'd have a different taste in our mouth if Cavani finished that one at 90, in the 93rd minute. Yeah, you know, exactly. Just burst our yeah. bubble. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you got two world-class strikers up there that these guys are taking on. Uh, I'm not sold on Aaron Long. I don't know if he's back to where he was. I mean, the way that you just talked about Zimmerman is sort of how everybody was talking about Aaron Long before his knee injury. And I, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, we can talk to Mike about this as well, but one of the things about making it and moving on and progressing is to stay healthy. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard. I mean, so many guys get close to the, you know, they're on the cusp and then they get hurt and then you got a setback and, and whether it's a career ending or career altering, uh, you don't know. 
Um, you know, you could look at Van Dyke with an ACL injury, comes back and he seemed to step or two slower in the beginning, but then he, he seemed to be right back where he, yeah, where he it takes a while. It takes a while, yeah. but Zimmerman, I think is, is not just the shorter passing, but the longer passing too. Like the first goal against Morocco, I think it was where the ball goes over the top and, you know, the way Pulisic brings that ball down is amazing. Yeah. And no one really is talking about the pass, like the pass to Aronson, you know, and, and it's a, it's, it looks like an easy finish, but it, it's in part of an easy finish because he didn't just lay it in his path. He laid it kind of further in front of him, which kind of removed the goalkeeper from being able to dive across and make a desperate save. So the quality and the weight of that pass that Pulisic made allowed Aronson to have an open goal as opposed to having to beat a keeper. And, and that yeah, yeah. was a, a detail that I don't think they talked about, but man, really high quality moment. I get annoyed that they don't talk about some of that stuff. I got to be honest. I like Taylor Twelman as a person. I think he talks too much. I think he talks through the action and he talks about strategy and sort of macro stuff when micro stuff is happening right in front of us. And, you know, you listen to the English, the Premier League announcers, it's, it's, you know, when there's a break in the action is when you tell those stories, not when they're building up into the offensive third of the field. I, I you know, I wonder, I, you know, I saw Bob Lee down in Key West this, uh, this weekend, and he wonders if anybody's talking to them. Is anybody mm. talking to them, you know, after the game, like a, like a coach. Um, but you bring up Bre Brendan Aronson. I want to ask you this quickly, because he plays like a coach's son. He seems like he just is very aware of his surroundings all the time. And he's always put an effort in. Uh, very unselfish player. What do you think? Yeah, about? yeah. Real blue collar approach. Um, humble. He's got a lot of humility to his game and he runs nonstop. And right. so, you know, you put those things together, you give yourself a fighting chance and he's got good ideas. And obviously he comes out of a certain way of playing, which is a very accelerated Red Bull type of way. Yeah. Uh, which is why he's gone through the Red Bull stuff and is why he's at Leeds. It's going to fit how Jesse's going to play there. But to me, and I think this has been discussed, uh, how do you how do you not play him? Like, I, I just think he, he's so valuable in terms of all right. the little intangible stuff that you bring. I wonder if he's a super sub or a guy who's in the first 11. That's a question. Uh, look, my personal opinion would be to put him on early, start him because he's going to wear some people out with his yeah. action. And, and, you know, you could you could sort of look at that super sub with speed sort of thing at the end uh but I, I no i do think he's too valuable as well we actually have a problem with if everybody's healthy who plays and this is a problem that classically italy has had or spain you know not the united states we're we've got our 11 that are just barely holding on uh but now we have some depth and guys are coming out of injuries uh, different season timings um gio reyna can he stay fit is he going to be a josie altador where he's always hurt you know and never quite uh, they're peaking when we need them to peak. Um, this is this goes back to our note about you know how do you you know deal with injuries and, and yeah how well do you progress yeah. and who are the best players and how do you put them on the field at the same time and and I think there's this long term conversation of who is the nine um, you know does Ferreira do enough I mean I appreciate how hard he works and he presses and when he gets his chances he always hits the target which I appreciate but yeah. okay maybe the goals haven't been there at this level. And then the side question is, do you have to have a nine? You know, what if you just played with, uh, I've kind of been saying this, so I guess this is now my opinion, is like, forget having a nine. Put your best three attackers out there and figure out figure out a way to play. No, Pep, Pep didn't have a, a nine, so and he seemed to do all right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. He has one now with Halan, so that'll be interesting. But, you know, the, the point is we just 
don't have one and we're not going to be able to manufacture one in the next couple of months. So you're right. either going to put out whoever you think is the best form of a nine, which it could be a mistake because the guy you're leaving out could be potentially a better player than that guy you're jamming into the lineup. Right. So I would love to see Aronson, Reina, Pulisic playing together in a, in a really fluid interchanging way. I, I think that could be the highest evolution of this team, in my opinion. All right. Well, speaking of nines, was Mike Winograd a nine? That's what the important question is here. No, he's a defender. He's a defender. <laughs> Good in the air. Good, Good in the air. air. All right, that's Zimmerman, man. Zimmerman didn't lose a ball. So, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to catching up with uh, Mike. I haven't seen him since uh, the coach's convention. And uh, a lot of insight. We have too much to talk to him about. So we're going to have to have him back sometime. So, all right. So stick around, everybody. When we come back, uh, Mike Winograd, our guest on Over the Ball. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, Mike Winograd. Mike has had a quite a yeah, storied background. He's got like the triathlon of, um, of soccer expertise. He ran for U.S. soccer president, uh, which is when I met him originally. He's played uh, college ball uh, with Chris Chamonix at Little Sisters of the Poor. <laughs> um, had a team, no, at Lafayette for Jeff Kettler. So uh, we have that in common as well, Mike. We went through Coach Getz, yeah. and uh, and then your son. You've 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 got to be relieved. Uh, he's he's going to Colgate, a great program, D one program, and a great school as well. I told Chris he didn't know this. More entrepreneurs have coming out of have come out of uh, Colgate than any other college. They're very proud of that fact. So uh, yeah, you know, my my son was one of the main driving forces. You know, he loved the program and he loved the school, and it was a, it's a great alumni network great business entrepreneur kind of kind of background. You know, that's one of the things that as you're talking to your kids, as you, you put them through the recruiting process, sometimes they get the D1 goggles on. They, they only want to play D1, which for many kids, it's not the right fit, you know? Yep. But I, I also think to look at the future, networking, who you meet, when you meet them is very important as well. And, and Colgate is, is a great school for that. So yep. is, that, is that something you looked at when you were recruiting, you know, or putting your son dealing yeah, with I mean Everything. Yeah, you know, so I had conversations with him. My son really did the whole, you know, the whole thing. I mean, he, he's a pretty independent kid. Um, but that was absolutely one of the things he looked at. And in fact, um, and he he had, you know, he had, you know, at the at the beginning, probably some goggles on as well. He was talking to some very, very big programs, top five kind of programs. But he, you know, sort of came to the conclusion that I want to go not just where I'm going to enjoy the soccer. But I also want to go where I'm going to enjoy the school and not just get a good degree, but but enjoy the school and meet people. And he said at one point to me, you know, he said, you know, you went to Lafayette and I see how close you are still with your college friends. And I kind of want that. And I think that's, uh, you know, he he picked a little bit based on that as well. Did everybody make fun of Chris at Lafayette? Is that what is that what happened? <laughs> well, the Chamonix? Chamonix, yeah, for, where, where'd you play at Lafayette in the midfield? He, he was he was part of at some point, Jeff Gatler introduced two sweepers. And he was one of the other sweepers. <laughs> I think before that, I think before that, Chris was outside back, probably. Um, but uh, you know, sweeper, well, my God, Mike, they go from double sweepers to no sweeper. To no at all now that's how bad it was. But that's how bad. Hey, do I get to answer what position I played, or is everyone <laughs> going to talk about what position? Yeah, I you, you'd probably say missionary. So we, we I, I, I was the best player in the country at the time. Uh, I just, <laughs> my coach didn't realize it. That's all. Uh, Gets didn't realize a lot of stuff. I think uh, I had the best hair in the country, I think, for a year there. Uh, that mullet was timing right out. Um, let, so I, I want to get back to your son and, and what you went yep. through. He's a goalkeeper, right? He's my, no, my son's center back. 
Where'd just, you get that from, goalkeeper? I don't know. Just making shit up as I go along here. <laughs> just, if he does stop a lot of goals, but not with his hands. So a center back. Now that, that's where they're going with double two center backs now. So you right. had one center back in the day, and then Chris was so weak with his left foot that they had to have two sweepers. <laughs> they did. You know, although, you know, the center back, I guess, is you know the closest we have to sweeper. Right on the weak side, he's the he's the sweeper. So I, I will say this, you know, you mentioned something like the, the camaraderie I had with my friends, uh, you know, playing in college and then in the indoor league afterwards, the friends I made for life. It's, it's unbelievable. Cause I said, maybe the analogy is too heavy, but I said, it's like, you're in the trenches with these guys. It's, yeah. you know, you're dealing with the same program, the same setbacks, the same, you know, going to war when you're outgunned with other, you know, bigger programs um, that I'm always amazed uh, i feel bad for people who haven't had that experience you know to to have that uh, test of fire with your with your teammates you know you know it's it's tremendous it's it's uh, and it doesn't happen at every school mm-hmm. and it doesn't even happen at at every program right i mean it's, it depends on the makeup of the program and the and the and the kids you're playing with and it's not just good you know it's it's you know we talk i do a lot of talking to current college kids and when we bring teams in and we talk to them, and we do it for Lafayette every year. One of the things we talk about is those experiences as a team in, in, in with, that you get from being a division one athlete with your team, being in the trenches. Mm-hmm. There are so many lessons that you learn that will carry over into life, learning to deal with adversity, learning how to win and learning how to lose, learning how to lose and get up the next day and, and go grind it out again. You know, there's, there's just, you know, teamwork. There's a lot of, you know, things that kids, are just second nature to them when they're on a team and competing that, that carry over and really are tremendous skills for life, for work and everything else. Right. Delayed gratification and all the things. So, all right. So you're talking about losing, you ran for us soccer president <laughs> and you lost, but I got to say, lose. and I was telling Chris, when I met you, I was impressed because you, you had a life, you were a successful lawyer. Um, you went to Penn, one of my, one of my safety schools. You, you, no, you actually, you played ball in college. You played professionally in Israel. I thought this is what we need. We need a guy who's knows soccer, but it's also a businessman. I tell you, I, I, I was friends with Hank Steinbrecher still, still am actually. And, and, you know, Hank said to me when he got involved with soccer, he was coaching at BU and then he got the job at Gatorade and he saw how big sports could possibly be. And he said, Pliny, he goes, there's, there's too many guys with mullets and flip-flops. Right trying to pretend this is going to be a business and it's like it's not a lifestyle and yep. it's become more of a business and that's why i thought you were a good candidate for for what happened talk a little bit about your experience of going through that and why you ran you know let me let me start with what you said and that was something that i that i talked a lot to the folks who were voting and a lot to the athlete council and you know when, when you know i wound up on the short list of all the different um um contingencies and 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 one of the things I talked a lot about was U.S. soccer started out as a mom and pop shop. It was a charitable organization. You know, at some point, I think Sunil was literally running to like Walmart and grab, you know, buying equipment to bring to a field as they were running out of stuff. And that was, you know, many, many years ago. It's incredible how far we've come. But it has now evolved into a real business. When you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, that's each year, that's a, that's a real business. Mm-hmm. It's you can't have, you know, just having played, you know, having the right, you know, mullet, having the right, you know, flip flops mm-hmm. is no longer qualification to run a business of this size. Right. And you really need to look to people who understand soccer, have a passion for soccer, but also have the business experience and expertise and, and, and competence. 
And that was one of the things I talked a lot about, and, and not just with respect to me. You know, I, I was asked, you know, in, in, in a couple of the interviews on the sort of the short list interviews, if we can't vote for you, who would you vote for? And, you know, who should we vote for? And, and I talked about the same things. There were certain folks who had that experience and certain folks who didn't. And it was just a recipe for disaster to, to sort of elect folks who, who didn't. Um, so I, I think it's come a long way. And you're absolutely right to key on that. Chris? Yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was interesting, Mike, how, you know, when, when you tackle that process and, and you, you, you get on the inside of it all and you learn a lot and you, and you get a lot of traction, and a lot of respect from a lot of people. And, and I know that it didn't end up with the win. But then you go through this next chapter now where almost like from a grassroots level, your son is coming up through the ranks and going through this recruiting process. And, you know, how, how when you look back on from A to Z, what his process, you know, went through mm-hmm. as a parent, as a, never mind everything else you've done in the game, but as a parent, do you look at that as, as like a healthy process or did you feel like there were, you know, it, that there was dysfunction in the process or things that you were concerned about? you know, as you, as he was going through it himself. Cause I know it sounds like you gave yeah. him a lot of, you know, uh, independence to do it, which is great. You know, as a, as a college coach, I would recommend that as well. And, and, and the, the men and the women going into the NCAA should pursue their recruiting process that way. But how do you look back on that, his process in, in, in terms of the perspective and the healthiness of it? There's some of that is related to the, the kind of stuff that I talked about. And, you know, as well from, from the campaign in terms of, you know, making sure that kids understand a clear path. You know, most, most, most parents, when they start out the process, you know, and I always ask parents when they talk about what should we do, what's the end game? Where are you trying to get, you know, where are you trying to go right. to at the end? And then let's work backwards. Because a lot of the paths that are very good, strong, admirable paths are not the right paths if you're going in a different direction or if you're trying to get somewhere else. And so, that begs the question, well, what is the path? And that was never clear. It was one of the platforms that we talked a lot about. We need to define a path. If you want to become a professional soccer player, this is your path. If you want to become a collegiate soccer player, this is your path. If you want to become, you know, a person who just plays casually, this is your path. And, and, I don't, I, and I, it's become a little bit more defined. I think that's one of the things that frustrates parents. I think if you know soccer and you can get involved, you may be able to navigate it a little bit better than others, but it's still problematic. One of the things that's probably not related to when I went, you know, ran for, for president of U.S. soccer was the actual experience that you were asking about in the path. And that, that's, a, that's a tougher question. There is, when you look at the academy system, now MLX Next runs it, but what we all think of as the academy system, mm-hmm. it requires more and more the type of demand of that, that when we were growing up, you know, of sport like gymnastics required, where if you wanted to have a shot, forget about whether we think you're going to make it, but if you want to have a shot, you really need to dedicate everything to this sport. You need to move away from home. You need to kind of put school on the back burner and you need to focus on the sport. I think the academy system is more and more requiring that of, of um, you know, our kids at a younger and younger age. And that has, you know, benefits for some, uh, you know, probably, you know, benefits for some players, but, but probably more benefits for pro teams, but it has a lot of disadvantages for the vast majority of kids in the programs who have good potential and who may wind up playing professional. Yeah. Kevin, that's interesting because like there's different academies out there and some of them, 
some of them say, Hey, you can do, do your high school thing. And then we'll train, you know, in the afternoons. And then there's others that are like, Hey, we want to bring your education under our umbrella. This way you could potentially train in the mornings in the same time slot as let's say the first team. Uh, but then th now what is that education? You know, what is the quality of that education? Right. Uh, Cause they're not necessarily in that business. And, and also, you know, what is the value? And, and Mike, I'd ask you to speak to this. Like, what is the value of that? versus potentially missing your high school experience. And, and, right. and not that you have to speak about your son in general, just but from the general perspective, how do you look at that trade-off? Because that's what's being asked of these kids now. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and the frustrating thing is when you talk about kids in the academy system, and I'm going to use it broadly, they're competitive kids by nature, right? We hope right. they're competitive. And one of the, you know, certainly when I coached my son, I mean, you know, for, for a few years, I mean, my, you know, the, the, and, to me, one of the most important things was cultivating that competitiveness. I mean, I think that drives everything in, for an athlete. A competitive person is not going to jump off the treadmill. If you're trying to compete in soccer and you love it and you're doing well, you want to get to the next level. And so if somebody says, do this to get to the next level, you're going to do it. You're going to, you're going to, and, and not really realize what you're giving up. And so I think a lot of these kids aren't making a conscious, and, and certainly the parents, you know, I don't think a lot of them realize it. They just say, hey, if my kid can keep doing this, I'll keep doing it. And you worry that some of these kids are going to get to 30, 35 years old and say, wait a minute. I, you know, let, let me put it this way. When we, when we were all playing, you know, back in the 80s, typically speaking, you played for your town team. You probably practiced two, three times a week and played a game on the weekends. And then you would, the better players would fill that in with an extra day here, an extra day here with select teams and state teams and things like that. As you got older, around 15, 16, you're already well into high school, teams started consolidating. So the one, the good team in, in, in Long Island would start pulling kids from 30, 40 minutes away, and half the team would be from that town and other, the ha other half from other places. And for the last couple, two, three years maximum of high school, again, three days a week, maybe you travel 20 minutes. You know, Maybe there were some kids traveling 20 minutes to a practice. The games are still generally local. Now it's become... At 13 years old, we want you to go to a res residential program or we want you to travel, you know, two hours to come to our academy, one hour, one and a half hours each way. And so right. the kid's life becomes in a car. He's doing homework. She's doing homework in the car. They're, they're not able to socialize after school. You know, my son, it, you know, was needed when he was, you know, playing for Red Bulls, they, they moved training to 2 p.m. He was missing afternoon. He couldn't take all the classes he wanted. So um, in, high, in high school, in high school. Yeah. Wow. We moved the classes to two. So we had, he had to take an extra class <clears throat> over the summer and uh, to get extra credits and then move all of his classes into the morning. And that, you know, limited him in terms of what he could take. But I think at the end of the day, you, you, you not only start forcing kids to sort of go online to, to get their studying, and that's the academic part, or not pay as much attention to the school part. You also take them out of the social, what we know as is the social sort of experience of high school. And, and other things with, with that intensity becomes, you know, eating properly and not going out and, you know, proper sleep. All the things that you would expect of a semi-professional or a professional player, right. which you would demand of a semi-professional or professional player. Now we're asking it in high school, and those are some big sacrifices. Now, will it benefit for soccer? You know, they may become better soccer players as a result. But they're giving up a lot in exchange. You know, I said, Mike, I think if you asked any of the three of us if we would have given that, done that, we would have. 
because I think definitely from the eighties, we were sort of in a deficit with coaching, couldn't find it. You had to really search out and it was like being in a cult for God's sake, you know, to, to find it, we can get some training. And, and, yeah. and now it seems like there's a ton, you know, asking the question about a D one goggles, I think a, a problem could become pro goggles where guys want to play pro. And, you know, I had always taken pride in the American system, which was you can go through college and be a pro. Uh, not unlike England, where you're an apprentice and you, right. you know, then you're, you have no education. Um, my concern, and we've talked about it on this show before, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, the, the college game and the NCAA, if, will this model work for college soccer? Will it still be around in, the, in its present form? Or do you think it's going to morph into something like a, everybody's a D2 program or, it, you know, um, like the English model where, you know, you can, you know, if you're not going pro, you could play in the college game. I, I don't, I, I think college soccer will stick around and, and I hope, I certainly hope it does. And, it, and I certainly hope it goes in the other direction. One of the things I talked about during the campaign was, you know, you look at these academies and by the way, MLS academies included, mm -hmm. you look at the facilities and the resources that these colleges have, they dwarf even the MLS teams. Why not take advantage of that? Right. You've got you know, some, you, you've got increasingly great coaches in college soccer. You've got facilities that are tremendous. The, the, you know, take advantage of that like basketball and football have. Um, so I hope that's the direction they headed. Some of the colleges are definitely changing. I mean, my son, when he was talking to programs, it has become, you talk about the goggles, the, those kids in the academy all have visions of playing pro soccer, which is mm -hmm. you know, great. Yep. Um, and when they get to college, for those that wind up going the college route, many of them still intend to play professionally. And the colleges play to that. They, you know, my son was told, you know, look, come here. We're going to give you a scholarship. And we, you know, we, we know you'll have a shot to go pro. And if you come here for a year or two, you, know, you make it through two seasons and you go and play pro, you can come back and we'll still, we'll honor your scholarship through the rest wow, of the- Wow, that's amazing. And, and that, that's becoming, I think with the bigger programs, more and more commonplace, um, similar to, I think what basketball is doing and football is doing. They're, they're trying to accommodate these kids who may want to go to college, but aren't sure. They may not have quite the option to go pro yet, or they may want to get a year under their belt and get into a college and, and, and then go pro. Yeah, you want to hedge and the parents will feel right. better. I, I think uh, the women's game, I think really the college game is conducive to women in professional sports because they do have a high level of competition uh, and then they can go pro if they want. Chris, yeah. thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, I think the NCAA, every sport's slightly different, but you're right. Like football, basketball are basically the farm system, if you will, for the NBA mm -hmm. and the NFL. Men's soccer, less so. Women's soccer, more so, to your point. Yeah. I agree with that. You know, but I also think that if you look at the global landscape, players are going pro at earlier ages. So, you know, Pelé is scoring in the World Cup when he's 17. Most young players are playing at real levels at age of 18. Um, and so now, as Mike's saying, players in the academies are being asked to make these big sacrifices. And I wonder when we look back if we'll feel happy and proud about some of these choices we've made. Because if you're a young boy and you're in L.A., you're hoping that LAFC or LA Galaxy call you. If you're in New York, you're hoping NYFC or, or Red Bull call you. And when they do, you're like, great, this is the highest level I could possibly get to. This could potentially be my ticket. But like I've talked to families where they have, one of the parents has changed their jobs and or they have moved 
and or they've sold their car and got a different type of car all to be able to get their kid to those practices. And sometimes they're not even attending high school anymore. So like, it's a dramatic impact on these families. And we don't have it weeded out where like the success rate is high, you know, only a small number of them are actually going to go on and have careers. So, you know, and, and Mike and I have talked before about this question of like, at what cost, you know, and so it's like, at what cost are we going through this? Like in minor league baseball, you will go through college and uh, well, let me say this, and I'm not a baseball guru, but I would, I, from the little that I know, if you're an absolute superstar, you'll get signed out of high school, go into the farm system and go to the pros. If you're not, you go to the college game and you're most likely going through your college experience and then getting out playing in the farm system. And it's the farm system where they determine, you know, after you've gotten out of college, whether or not you can make it to the show. Right. Right. Here we're asking families to sacrifice high school and potentially do all of that. And sometimes even NCAA eligibility in exchange for a really low percentage shot. And that's where it gets a little, you know, dicey. I mean, did you have those kinds of conversations, Mike? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we, uh, I did, I had a lot of those kinds of conversations with other parents as Liam was coming up through it. So for example, you know, it becomes tricky when a player who's a really good player with prospects um, is offered a contract. And the, the choice is, do I go play at a really good, do I, do I go get an education at a really good school and play at a really high level and with a scholarship or do I sign a contract? And it's the same idea. It's the, do I really give all that up for a contract that's not a million dollar a year contract. It's a small contract that gets, you know, a team's hooks into me. And then it's, you know, still questionable whether I'll make it. And, and it's those kinds of sacrifices. I've had lots of conversations with parents, but one thing I've always talked to them and I, you know, we, we certainly considered it with, you know, with our son, but again, when you're in it, even when you know, even there, there are lots of times when you can step back as a parent and say, when I map out what I'd love for my kid, this is the wrong decision. It's it, the cost is too high. It's still very, very hard to number one for you to, to make that call to step off that treadmill or number two, to tell a kid who's competitive, Hey, you shouldn't, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the right thing to, to, you know, stay in this. It's, it's a, it's a very tricky, it's a very tricky situation because there's no perfect answer. You know, and then they, I think they romanticize this sort of Clint Dempsey model, which is, oh, he, you know, drove an hour and a half for Nakadoshis, right. you know, and then all the way back and his parents, you know, they sort of, and it is a wonderful story because there's this kid with his parents and they sacrifice so much, but for every Clint, how many, you know, kids, kids aren't doing that. Um, yeah. Let me, uh, we're, we're wrapping up here in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about your playing career in Israel. So how, how did that come about? Were you on the Maccabean team or in the game? So I, so I was, when I was playing in college, we played a game against Adelphi and um, a guy, a, 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 an Israeli who had played on the Israeli national team, a long professional career over there, a guy named Roby Young was my state team coach in the EDP back in the day. He was there with the guy who's a scout from Israel because they had brought players to Adelphi, came up to me after the game said, hey, you know, do you want to play pro? I think you could. And they sort of set something up. I went over the team that they had set me up for was relegated. So I wound up going to a different team, um, trained with them for a week, went to Romania for their preseason and came back and got a contract. What an experience, man. So first of all, how's the level there? How did you adjust? How long did it take you to adjust? And uh, was it some lonely nights going, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) A lot of lonely nights because there's no email, there's no internet, there's none of that. 
But um, the level, the level was great. It was a much higher soccer level than I'd ever played at. You know, the ball went up the middle of the field. Why go out wide when the goal's in the middle? And it was just a lot of one touch up the center of the field. Wow. Athletically, I could compete pretty well. Um, the, the one, the, the biggest, the biggest difference in my mind, and certainly when I came back that I'd noticed, um, was, you know, one, the speed of the game, just in terms of just play the ball and, 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 you know, without holding on to it too long. But the other thing was the strength. And that was not an Israeli thing. It was, you know, one of the disadvantages of playing you know, when we were in college and we were really training three, four months a year, right. You're just not as strong as when you're training 10 and a half months a year, your muscles aren't as strong, right. You know, the, the, exerting the same effort to hit a ball, the ball goes a lot faster. Your shots get a lot harder. And I, I started noticing that, um, you know, it was, it was a huge difference uh, between the two. I know the size yeah. of my legs in my first year in the pros, like it expanded exponentially, you know, you're right. like, because you, you're playing every day, like you said. And for guys like us who were just in love with the game and wanted to go to the next level, man, getting up every morning and going to practice as a professional player is just a dream. You know, with with a bunch of other guys doing the same thing. Chris? Yeah, I mean, you talk about Israel or playing in a different country. And I think this is one of the dilemmas that the American player has specifically is that if you're in Sweden, if you're in Germany, whatnot, you know, you can pursue your playing and take on the risks of playing and making it or not making it and still have a free college education waiting for you. Right. You know, and so it's much, much easier for them to go all in on their, on their soccer, on their football, because they know they have that net to catch them on the education side here. We don't have that. So the the players have to make choices. So, I mean, I, I guess looking at it now where you're kind of in this Mike in this, in this spot where, okay, you've gone through the youth landscape. Now you're going to get into the college landscape. How do you now look at the pro side? Like, do you look at it as, hey, it would have been like this college game is a great vehicle for me, for Liam to make it to the pros? Or are you thinking that the homegrown side would be a better angle? Uh, and maybe whether you want to answer it as, as you know, specific to your family or just in general, like mm-hmm. in the conversations you've had with other families, do you see a, a road that is preferred or chosen more often? I, I, I think that I think as a general matter, from the club's perspectives, they would probably prefer the homegrown path. They get to keep them in their system. They get right. to keep them training 10, 11 months a year. And, and, you know, one of the things I always say and I, to, to, college kids if you think you can play pro after college go play because one of the things and it doesn't matter what level one of the greatest things that you don't get to experience during college is when you're a professional player kevin you'll know this right you you and, and chris will know this from coaching it's you can make soccer your first second and third priority mm-hmm. that means the next most important thing in your life is like number four on the list <laughs> and when you do that you can achieve a lot more you can get a lot more satisfaction and and, and excel a lot more that's a great experience and I'd encourage it for everyone. The question that we were talking about earlier is, is it worth it to make that kind of a sacrifice before your college and give up sort of college, give up your high school experience? That's a tougher question and, and, and maybe player specific. But I think from a, from a club perspective, they want you to make that sacrifice as early as possible because I think in their, in their mind, they will be able to make you into a slightly better player, whether you make it in their, in their it'll give them more to choose from. Um, but I think for a lot of players, and certainly at the moment, and, and you know, I think the academy is as better coaches get involved and maybe they look to coaches in, in college who are, you know, start, start, you know, 
increasing salaries to start saying, you know what, maybe rather than becoming an assistant in MLS, you know, the, I, I might want to do an academy type of position, or maybe instead of taking that college job, I want to do an academy type of position. Or when you start making it more of a path for coaches to go through the academy coaching um, to get into the pros, you'll, you'll get hopefully better, you'll keep, continue to improve the coaching level there. But I think ultimately for the, for the, for the sports, for the teams, they like that path. But again, I, at this, at this point, I don't know for all kids or even most kids, whether they can't go to these competitive division one programs. And yes, there'll be a step behind when they graduate because of all, like all the things we've been talking about. I don't know that it takes all that much time to make up that lost step. Yeah, it'll be interesting to just look back on this 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and yeah. then we'll have data on how many kids have come through and, and, and where they ended up going. I mean, look, it's, I don't want this to be a conversation where it sounds like it's down on the MLS academies because I don't believe that. I actually think the academies do provide the best soccer experience and pathway, uh, certainly up to the college ages. And then from there, if anything is coming from this conversation, I feel like it's an extremely case by case basis, you know, where a family is and what their options are and, and how a club works with them because they're getting creative ways uh, to, to find ways to not have them put and sacrifice their education. It's just going to be that trade-off, I think, for every family to make that decision. And it's good that we bring it up. And Mike, I appreciate your time today because it's the perspective is interesting because we are going to hear more and more of these stories of the successes, um, but we don't always hear the other stories. You know, it's like what, what uh, uh, when we had Gardner on a couple of weeks ago about you know, he, you hear about the concussions of the famous players, but you don't hear about the hundred concussions of, you know, of the players who that you don't know about. It's the same thing that's happening here. There's a lot of kids getting kicked out of the system and, you know, you just want to, it's a healthy conversation see if there's a better path forward. You know, though, guys, and I will say this, and Mike, you, you might agree with me or not, but I always find that sacrifice, working hard, even if you don't achieve that particular goal, the journey leads you somewhere. You meet someone, you do something, you go off yeah. in a different way. So I don't think in a sense, more high school kids maybe get an opportunity to play high school ball because there's more development kids. What I always laugh at is, you know, Christian Polistic had said the most important time for development for him was 14 to 16, which it seems is a real soft spot in all of our education, soccer wise. Um, what I always laugh at was I, I went to the BBC and did a show with Gary Lineker, who was my World Cup hero when I think I was a freshman in high uh, college. And I remember when I sat next to him, I asked him how old he was and he was two years older than I was. So, you know, he was in, I think where was in Italy, maybe scoring all those goals. He was 19. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I think is, is good. And we can actually measure, you know, you're talking 10 years, Chris, um, look at the U S men's national team. They're, they're a young group of guys. Uh, they're getting chances in their early twenties and teen, late teens, as opposed to Harksey and Ramos and all those guys sticking around for three cycles. It just doesn't happen anymore. So, I mean, I think this is all good in the end, don't you think? Yeah, look, you know, there, and I said this during, when, during, during the, the election as well, you need to give it a couple of generations to see if this academy program will work. And, and again, and to, to Chris's point, it, look, the academy system is great. My, my son loved it, right? I mean, yeah. he, 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 his experiences with Red Bulls was tremendous. I mean, he, you know, playing in Austria and, and, you know, against the, you know, some of the best teams in the world and Chelsea and, and teams out of the Bundesliga. It was, it was, it was a great experience. Um, and, uh, you know, it was absolutely tremendous experience. It comes with sacrifices and sometimes sacrifices, you know, you're right, can, can absolutely be, 
be uh, beneficial. But, you know, from a parent perspective and from kids perspective, they need to go into it with open eyes. Well, your kid seems like he has uh, some good perspective. So he obviously uh, his mother has. A sh- her sh- That's right. Wasn't her dad. <laughs> exactly. Hey, um, you know, I was a big fan of yours when you were running for the president. I, I know we uh, we got a wrap here now, but um, I'd like to have you come back, talk about it, about if you'd ever run in the future, uh, what you think it looks like, um, what needs to change. Um, because, boy, you're a wealth of knowledge, Mike. Uh, I mean that in the best of ways, even not just the stories you could tell me about Chris in college. <laughs> That's <laughs> everything a else. separate episode. Absolutely. Hey, uh, Mike Winograd, thank you so much for joining us on Over the Ball. Best of luck with your family and your son. Seems like uh, he's on a great path, and uh, I'm sure you're a big reason for it. Thanks, and, and thank you guys for all you're doing for soccer. And, uh, you know, Chris and, and Kevin, you know, on, on many levels in many respects. So Mostly Kevin, though. I understand what you meant there. All right, thanks. Yep. Take care, guys. What would have happened if he was the president of U.S. soccer? Would things have been different, Chris? I don't know. He's The guy's got his shit together, I'll tell you that. I mean, uh, you've talked to me about him before, but he's pretty driven dude, isn't he? Smart dude, driven dude. Uh, yeah, look, if he was president of U.S. soccer, we'd be fine. And uh, we'd be doing a lot of good things because I think he brings a balanced approach. And he's one of those guys. And I always appreciate these, you know, the the people in our sport who have the sport first and foremost. You know, it's not about themselves. It's about trying to grow uh, soccer in America. And anytime we have men and women with that priority first, uh, you know, I think that's great for the game. And, And it's what we've needed all these generations to get it to where it is now. And so he had a real purity to his campaign. And maybe we'll talk to him about it more so. But uh yeah, there's a there's a political machine behind the scenes that that, you know, he had oh, to navigate, especially yeah. as a quote unquote outsider. So it was really interesting. You know, the, the fact that he can be an outsider is absurd, you know, uh, it comes up through the ranks and, and uh, you know, accomplish things independently. I mean, to go to get to go back to my Hank Steinbrush, I think it was like, yeah, you needed outside eyes looking in, but you needed a soccer person. My, my biggest beef with ESPN when I first went to work for them back in 94 was uh, my producer was not a soccer person. And so I'm explaining the game to someone when they want their whole life to be about sports and they didn't know this game, you know, calling a, a goaltender or just the little things that that would sort of annoy me. I'm like, and then I found the one guy was doing soccer and tennis because he wanted to get to basketball or because, you know, I was like, man, it's just enough against us anyway. So, um, yeah, well, I think the the politics of running for U.S. soccer, you know, there's so many aspects to it because the country is so big, right? You have the amateur level, the pro level, um, and there's there's deep pockets at the pro level. So there's real influence there. And so he's labeled an outsider. Uh, be, simply because he doesn't have, you know, uh, a jacket with a logo on it in in, in real time. But right, he's right. had his whole life in soccer and right. people don't know where he's played and all that stuff. He knows more about the game than the majority of people. So we shouldn't. You're right. It is absurd that 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 tag gets on there. But I think, you know, I wonder if he'll run again one day because. He, well, I, I was going to say that nobody yeah. ever wins on their first campaign in anything, really, whether yeah. it's uh, whether it's Obama or, or anyone else. You know, he didn't get his first congressional campaign in. So people get to know you by your first campaign. And then, you know, you put up your life's work after that. It just seems like, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. It's also interesting to hear him talk about the recruiting process. And I mean, this is this is the end of every conversation is the same in my opinion, which is that there's not any sense of real clarity. 
you know, there's not one path, there's not one way, right? right. You know, and there's so many, and and I, I get that, but at the same time, I think it puts families in a lot of compromised situations where they have to make some choices, and you know, that that yeah. becomes difficult when there's a lot on the line, like a college education, and they're not clear cut choices. So it's sort of, and like you said, let's look back in ten years and see where this goes, and that's that's really going to be the only indicator as we look back, try to make good decisions as we move on. Um, I wouldn't say it's a big game, but U.S. men's national team plays on Friday, June 10th against Grenada. I think we invaded them once when I was in college. (laughs) (laughs) We actually invaded them. Apparently, they were turning into communism. I've been there a bunch of times on cruise ships. It's a tiny little Caribbean, you know, island. And we invaded them. Um, was that us? Are you sure? That was us. Yeah, Ronald Reagan was the president at the time. I don't think you were. You were United States of America? Yeah. Uh, we kind of jumped on, I guess, uh, they had some, I think Russian or Cuban troops were there and we just went there and just scared the shit out of them as we (laughs) are known to do Um, with our cruise ships. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll make you gain eight pounds in a week. No, don't do it. That's a perfect Renata accent too, by the way, if you, if you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, but so uh, difficult to go from Uruguay to Grenada. You know. Yeah. So let me say as a coach, what do you, what do you do? Do you, do you just open up the floodgates, let all the boys off the bench and play this game? Or do you still try to see who's, who's gelling and who's playing well together? Yeah. I think you have two, two you had two chapters. You had one chapter was getting through Morocco and Uruguay. And then right. now this next chapter is okay. These, this string of games here, right. and they'll have diff, they'll set different goals as a staff for each of these two chapters. And so, you know, we don't know what those are exactly, um, but obviously he has pre-scripted certain, you know, substitutions in the previous two games. He'll probably do the same here, managing midness, getting different looks, different combinations. And mm-hmm. it's all part of the trial run for the World Cup, because I think he said he has 19 or 20 that he feels he can write into the roster. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a handful left that he needs to solidify. Uh, then there's a short list for that. And these are these guys' opportunities. All right, so U.S. Grenada on uh, Friday, 10 p.m. Eastern time. What's your prediction? I'm going with 4-1. Uh, 5-1. 5-1, Kevin Flynn. Why 5-1 and not 4-1? Because uh, I think they're going to just sort of hit goals, and then Grenada will get one late on the counter. I think Grenada will not score a goal against the United States of America. That's my prediction. All right, what? what, what uh, no goal scoring on the other end? That's where we're hurting, by the way. That would be the big prediction because we're not giving up much. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with 4-0. How's that? All right, 4-zip. And just always trying to outdo me. El Salvador on Tuesday, June 14th. So that'll be a tough <laughs> Is that game. trying to outdo you? <laughs> just, you know, trying to win the bet. It's weird, man. You you and Mike are so competitive. It's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> hey. You ask me for a prediction, I give it to you. And then you tell me I'm trying to outdo you. Uh, that's how it works here. So, <laughs> um, Hey, man, good grab. I'm glad you got Mike on here. He had a lot of great information. Um, hey, guess who's that, Mike? Fran O'Leary, the head coach of UMass, is calling me right now. Um, but uh, that was a good that was a good uh, a good get on your part. I think um, he had a lot of knowledge there, and I like to talk to you know someone who's in the game but out of the game kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, so nice stuff. So like thank Mike Winograd for being our guest today on Over the Ball for Chris Shamadais and uh, Kevin Flynn. Uh, we'll talk to you next time on OTB. Mm-hmm.